Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Okay, so we're coming into land today on our James series, Grow Up. Uh, many of you have said how helpful you found this series, how challenging you found this series, which is great. That's the whole point of the reason why James wrote it, was to basically, as Jake said last week, get in our business and really encourage us into the things of God and uh, to really uh, ensure that there's an outworking of our faith. Our faith isn't just something we speak about. It has uh, a demonstration in the way we live, the way we act, and the way we relate to different people. So you've survived four weeks of James's body blows. He's come at you in all sorts of different ways, not pulling his punches. And today, I'm afraid it's more, you're on the ropes, he's going to come at you again with some more hard-hitting challenges as we look into chapter five. So um, let's start by reading uh, chapter five. I'll put on the screens for you. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. This needs a PG rating, doesn't it? You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who have mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So James not mincing his words here. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that in James's time, there were many wealthy landowners who owned large estates uh, in, the, in the area around Palestine. And it seemed their primary concern was purely how much profit could they gain from these estates. So, so James begins to condemn them. He actually attacks them in four different areas. The first is their selfish hoarding of wealth. They're hoarding wealth. And James sees this hoarding as depriving those who need finances, who need resources. And not only are they hoarding their wealth, but they're compounding this this action by doing it in what James describes as the last days. You hoarded your wealth in the last days. And the last days refers, when we see this in Scripture in the Bible, this is referring to the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus And this is known by the Greek word parousia. So throughout scripture and throughout the gospels, you have this inference that Jesus will actually come back. At some point, Jesus will return. And he said himself, he didn't know the day or the hour when that would be. Only the God the Father knew the day or the hour, but he would actually come back in glory. And that point, kind of all of history gets rolled up. And that's the day we get to meet Jesus again in glory. Now, when James wrote this letter some 2,000 years ago, was he mistaken in thinking that Jesus' Jesus' return was imminent? He was living in the last days. Well, that's only true if you believe that James thought that this was going to happen imminently. James believed it could happen at any time, not that it would happen any time. And there's a difference, yeah? He believed it could happen at any moment, not necessarily that it would happen at any moment. So in a sense, any follower of Jesus has to believe the same thing that James believed. At any point, Jesus could return. Jesus could come back 
at any moment. And so if we live with a sense of the last days, we don't live in a fatalistic way of say, well, nothing really matters. You know, it's all going to finish anyway. We don't need to bother about anything. We don't need to steward anything. We can just kind of, you know, just whatever. As it says in, in the Old Testament, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, there's, there's, that's not what James is saying here. He's saying if we realize that our time on earth is short, but our time in eternity is long, then that changes the way we live our time on earth. So it should stimulate us to live in a way that seeks first the kingdom, that actually is in awareness of what God wants, what God has entrusted to us, what pleases God the Father in terms of the way we live our lives. So we can all go home and receive a well done, a well done welcome in terms of the way we've lived our lives. And so for James, the fact that these wealthy landowners are not only hoarding their wealth, but they're doing it in the last days, in a sense that when God could return at any time and, and basically ask them, well, how have, you, how have you used what's been entrusted to you? How have you used the, the blessing of this wealth? That, for him, is a foolish thing to do. You see, treasure, wealth, riches, money, whatever, however you want to describe it, God gives it for the benefit of human flourishing. That's why God gives it. That's why God entrusts it to you and I for the benefit of human flourishing and to steward this beautiful creation that we live in. So one day, at some point in the future, we get to give an account of what's been entrusted to us, little or small, you know, large or small. We get to give an account of what's been entrusted to us. This, this sense when we come before God the Father and he says, okay, I gave you this stuff, I entrusted this stuff to you, how did you use it? And so, to selfishly hoard your wealth in light of that moment, in light of that day, James sees this as incredibly foolish. The second thing he brings against them is the fact that they're, they're defrauding their workers. These, there's an increasing number of wealthy landowners who were hoovering up the small farms around that time, and basically, farmers were being swept up into these large estates, and the only way they could earn a living was to hire themselves out to these wealthy Landowners, they would have worked on a sort of a day-to-day basis, a hand-to-mouth basis, almost, you know, requiring a day's wages to buy their daily bread. And James says, you've withheld these wages. You've withheld the money from the workers. And uh, he uses this very powerful phrase. He says, these wages are crying out against you. There's a sense that the very wages themselves that haven't been paid, haven't been given to the workers are crying out to God in injustice to say these, these ways have been withheld. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. James is convinced these landowners won't get away with this injustice. These unpaid wages are crying out to God who's going to come and vindicate them. The Lord Almighty here is a, a better translation that's in your NIV is the Lord of the armies the Lord of hosts. And James is saying there's a God, a powerful God, a just God, a holy God who leads an almighty army who's coming to put things right. And you need to be aware that that God sees the injustice of the wages you haven't paid the workers. It's an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. And you've withheld that money and the Lord of the hosts, the Lord of the armies, sees that. He hears the cry and he's coming to put it right. 
The third thing James brings against them is their self-indulgent lifestyles. They were living these luxurious, luxurious, sorry, selfish lifestyles that were unconcerned about other people's needs. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. James uses a verb here to describe these wealthy landowners. It's also used in the Old Testament in a place you probably wouldn't expect. It's used to describe the sin of Sodom. Now, most people think the sin of Sodom is sexual immorality. But actually, the sin of Sodom is the fact, well, read it on the screen there. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. And it's the same connection here James is making between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Gospels. That basically to, be, to live in luxury, unconcerned and uncaring about the needs of the people around you is gross sin as far as the Lord is concerned. And the last charge James brings is the oppression of the righteous. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Now, most who study this letter don't think James is referring to Jesus here. He's not referring to Jesus as the innocent one. He's referring to anybody who is basically living under corrupt power who can't defend themselves against that power and that wealth, unable to withstand the oppression of the powerful. So we've got this heavy-hitting list of four charges. Well, guys, the good news is that he wasn't writing this list to those in the church. So you can all take a deep breath of relief now, okay? He was writing to people outside the church. This was referring to wealthy landowners who clearly weren't within the community of the church that James was writing to. So why did he include this in his letter? Well, there's, there's two possible reasons. The first one is encouraging you and I and people in the church on difficult situations not to envy those who are rich and powerful. Don't envy them. Don't believe that's where you'd like to be. That's a better place to be because with their wealth comes corruption and difficulty. Don't envy the rich. And the second thing is he's trying to encourage us that God will put right any injustice. He will come and put it right eventually. And so as he writes this community are suffering uh, at that time, he's saying, be patient. God will come and put things right. Don't envy those wealthy landowners. Now, presuming we don't have any corrupt landowners in the room this morning, just checking, what can we take from this section? What can you and I take from this section? What are the questions it raises for us? Well, I think always the question is, are we using our resources wisely? Are we living in light of the last days? Are we stewarding what God has given us in light, in the point in the future, you and I get a chance to come before the Lord God and give an account of how we use what God has entrusted to us. Are we considering those people around us, or are we living in, you know, are we oblivious to needs? These rich people weren't being judged because they were rich. They were being judged because they were uncaring and selfish and had no consideration for the people. They, they had around them or the people they were employing or the people they were supposed to be serving. And so James attributes their pending judgment to this misuse of wealth, this misstewardship of resource. And that theme is throughout the Bible. You can go right back into the Old Testament, into the Mosaic law in the Old Testament and see 
See the concern for the poor embedded there in the Mosaic law, right through into the Gospels and Jesus talking about the, the dangers of the misuse of wealth and the corruption that wealth can bring. And so we need to pay attention to that. Because in world terms, you and I are rich. Yeah? In world terms, we are rich. We are the rich because of how much provision we have in Western society. And so much has been entrusted to us. And how do we live in light of the fact that God will ask us to give an account for what we did with what he gave us? And that's really, really important. We all live in the last days. The the, the words that James spoke some 2,000 years ago are as applicable today as they were then. We all live in the last days. The Apostle Paul said the days are short. When we live in the kingdom, there's always an expectation that God could return at any point. Jesus could come back at any point. And that's really, it's really important we have that understanding because we live for eternity. We look, we've look, we're looking forward to an eternity. And this time on earth is short and we get to steward stuff that God gives us. So it's really important that we think about and reflect on are we living in light of those last days? Because Jesus will return at some point. Maybe not be in our lifetime, maybe in a different lifetime. But we still want to receive that well done, good and faithful servant, don't we? We've lived in a way that pleases the Lord. The next section in my Bible is entitled Patience in Suffering. Let's move on to that then. We're reading from verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. So after his scathing comments against those outside the church, these wealthy landowners, now James turns his attention back to those inside the church. And he says, you need to endure patiently under persecution. Linked to the phrases he said before. You need to suffer patiently. James repeats the word patience four times in this section. Be patient then, brothers and sisters. Patiently wait for the return Sorry, for the autumn and spring waves. Be patient and stand firm. Brothers and sisters, set an example of patience. Anyone struggle with patience? Most of us do, don't we? Most of us struggle with patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, it says. So we're called to grow patience in our lives as we journey with God. Now, Patience isn't just being able to smile in a long supermarket queue or sit behind somebody who can't get out of a T-junction, you know, patiently waiting or traffic lights or a level crossing. or That's patience, but James is really talking about being able to tolerate and flourish in difficult circumstances. That's the sort of patience that James is talking about here because these guys that James is writing to are going through tough times. But he says, be patient in those tough times. In fact, flourish in those difficult circumstances. Because 
Well, the Lord's coming is near. He's back to the same theme again. He believes that, you know, at some point, God will come back and set everything straight, set everything right. So live patiently in light of that truth. Again, the NIV doesn't really do this, this phrase justice. In the King James, it's beautifully written. It says, while you wait, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. The next time you're in a supermarket queue and you're waiting, you can establish your heart. Next time you're sitting behind somebody in traffic, you can establish your heart. In fact, any time you are waiting patiently for the Lord's return, in the worst circumstances, you can be establishing your heart. And this is all about, James is saying, is, is setting up a direction of heart affection in your life. So regardless how difficult life is and whatever you're enduring and struggling with or, or having to wait for, underneath it all, you're setting a heart direction towards the Lord, towards Jesus, remembering that you're going to be with him, remembering that he's returning, remembering that he's going to come and put everything right. So whatever you're enduring and whatever afflictions upon you, you're establishing your heart. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? Better than stand firm, isn't it? That's just a bit weak. Establish your heart. It's a proactive thing that you and I can be doing all the time while we're living on this earth. No matter how difficult life is around us, we are establishing our hearts. And Jesus acted himself as if he was living in the last days. He lived his life in the moment, acted as if he was living in the last days. And he calls us to do the same, to live with that sense of awareness and expectation. He told many parables about the return of the Father, the return of the Father coming and basically wrapping everything up. The wise and foolish virgins, all these different stories and illustrations about any point, any point, God could come back and draw us the fullness of his kingdom together. So you and I can be establishing our hearts, being patient. Why why has he mentioned grumbling here? Don't grumble against one another. Christians can tend to be grumbling. Which is a shame, isn't it? Considering all that we know. Uh, But we can be a bit grumbling. Um, Yeah? Yeah. The idea here is James is saying, don't just grumble about one another. Don't grumble to one another. So it doesn't matter who you're grumbling about or what you're grumbling about. James, actually try and get out of the habit of grumbling to one another as much as grumbling about one another. Why aren't we supposed to be grumblers? Well, because grumbling is closely linked to judging. Yeah? So if we're grumbling, we're only really one step away from judging somebody or something. And we all know what James feels about judging, don't we? We've looked at that intently over the past few weeks. James continually returns to this touchstone of do not judge or you'll be judged. So if you're grumbling, you're very close to judging. And James sees that as something that actually, if you're going to be grumbling, you're going to slip into judgment. And if you slip into judgment, well, then you're back into that whole 
equation of actually you come on then under God's judgment because you're withholding mercy and grace that's been so freely given to you. The real judge is standing at the door. Have you ever been in the middle of an argument in your house and the doorbell's gone? And you thought, I wonder how much of that they heard. <laughs> Nobody. My goodness, you're a beautiful lot this morning. Or the window's been opened to the garden and you've been having a fight and, oh, I wonder how much that they... No? Okay, maybe not. It's just us. It's just us. It's just us. (laughs) This is the picture James is painting here. You know, if you're grumbling away and judging each other, ding dong, oh, there's God at the door. That's how imminent and close God is to us all the time by his spirit and ultimately by his return. You know, we, we, we live in... Expe- we have some people around, maybe tidy your house up, get things ready, maybe. Do a bit of, bit of housework, maybe, I don't know. James saying, live in light to the fact that at any point the doorbell could go and God's there. And God's arriving and God's come. Live in that expectation. And so, when you're tempted to grumble or judge somebody, be aware that the judge could be at the door. The real judge, the loving judge, the, could be at your door any moment. And so... We live in light of that, so that, that helps to restrain our grumbling, helps to restrain our judging of each other, because actually we recognise that ultimately, as James said over and over again, we're not really qualified to judge each other. We're not qualified to pass comment on each other. We should actually withhold those things and actually think about how we can bless and support and encourage one another. James uses Job as, a, as, a, as an example of godly perseverance here uses um, Job as a person of patience. To count as blessed in this section, it means to live under an assurance of God's approval. So to live in that sense of, of being, being in, kind of in God's care, in God's love and support. And um, that uses Job as a, a character from the Old Testament, somebody who persevered uh, under trial. And then you just straight off into another section here, seemingly unrelated. Above all, my brothers, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. I don't think James is saying this, cap, this is above everything else in the sense that this caps everything else. He's saying this kind of should be throughout our lives. It should be a, a way that we think and live. He's saying that truthfulness and honesty and integrity should be a consistent part of who we are as people if we follow Jesus. And it shouldn't require any additional kind of oath or swearing behind what we say to ensure to people that we're telling the truth or we're being honest. This mimics Jesus' advice virtually word for word given in Matthew 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says virtually exactly the same thing. And so we know James is picking up that theme. It always makes me smile when someone says, well, to be honest, and I think, well, what were you saying before? <laughs> to be honest? Blagging, exaggerating, white lies, mistruths, even outright lying, are very much part of our society. It's endemic. Some people have no problem lying countless times a day just to get through the day or to get the job done. It's really, really sad. Because Jesus is saying, as followers of him, then we need to have integrity and truth in our hearts. Even difficult as it is sometimes to tell the truth and to be honest... We're never called just to be honest for the sake of just hurting somebody, but we're called to be honest and truthful in the way we live 
We have, to, we have to temper our truthfulness with our grace, don't we? And make sure we do live that way. But we shouldn't have to swear on something. You know, I swear on my baby's head. I mean, what's that even mean? I swear on my mom's grave. I mean, what? You know, Jesus, James is saying we don't do any of that to convince people actually we're people of integrity and truthfulness. The whole message of this letter is that we're the same on the inside as the outside. We're people who aren't fragmented, but we're bound together in Jesus. And that should also be part of our speech. We shouldn't have to adorn our speech with, with phrases that actually convince people we're telling the truth. Okay, we're coming into land now on this last section, which is all about prayer. Is anyone amongst you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So James concludes this this letter with an encouragement to pray. The Apostle Paul, in his letters, encourages us to pray at all times. You can find that in Ephesians 6 and 1 Thessalonians letters. Paul is about praying at all times. James is about praying in all things. So we have this beautiful combination of prayer should be woven through our lives. We're praying continually, consistently, and we're praying about everything. And those are these two great encouragements that come through the pastoral epistles. So, are we in trouble? We pray. Are we happy? We pray. Are we ill? We pray. Are we making bad choices? We pray. Pray. Prayer is such a key theme that James is endorsing here throughout our lives. James is a massive advocate of prayer. There's a church historian called Eusebius of Caesarea, and he wrote about James. And he said that James spent so much time on his knees in prayer that he has knees as hard as a camel. Now, I had no idea what a camel's knees looked like, so I had to look it up. Here you are. Pretty gross. Massive calluses on the back knees and front knees of a camel. But James's nickname was he spent so much time on his knees in prayer and worship that his knees had calluses like a camel. What a fantastic legacy to be spoken about in that way. Old camel knees. <laughs> James so believed that prayer strengthened the believer it promoted well-being in any and every circumstance, whether happy or sad, in, in difficult times or easy. Prayer for him had to be sown through the life of a follower of Jesus. And uh, there's an encouragement in this section for, for the elders to, uh, to pray. Those with pastoral responsibility are encouraged to go and pray for those who are sick. I don't think James is saying anything special about those people. It's just an encouragement. That's what those people would would do and be involved in. 
And that's an encouragement for the whole church to be involved in prayer, to pray for each other. The anointing of oil here, I think, is symbolic. It's an act of consecration, setting that person aside for, to God. There's no magic in the oil, I don't think. There's healings in the New Testament with oil and without oil, so oil doesn't have to be present uh, when we pray for healing. But for James, it's just a way of symbolically consecrating that person uh, back to God. He says, a prayer often in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Even if they sin, they'll be forgiven. Let's unpack what James is saying here. What does a prayer offered in faith mean? Well, I think a prayer offered in faith means that when we pray, we're putting all our faith in God to do the healing. That's what this means. We, we, we don't, we're not putting any faith in ourselves. We're putting all our faith in God to be the person who can heal. He's the one who can miraculously heal. And that's why James says it's the Lord who will raise them up. Not the person who's praying, it's the Lord who will raise them up. The Lord is doing the work as we do our part, as we choose to pray for somebody. So we put our faith in God when we choose to pray for someone for healing. We do our part and then we entrust in God to do his part. We leave the outcome to God. And James says, if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. And the key word here is, is if. It doesn't mean that their sickness is attributed to sin. He's just saying if sin is present as well at that time, well, God can cover that as well. They can be forgiven and restored. Sometimes sinful living, bad choices can lead to ill health and sickness. But James isn't saying the two are necessarily linked. But God can do both and. He, he's a God who is interested in healing the whole person. So he can physically heal and he can spiritually heal and he can emotionally heal. It's all present when we pray. And James sees that forgiveness as part of the restoration of the person. We have to be careful here because the church has got into this mistake in the past of thinking that healing, prayer for healing is like a formula that we just need to get right. If we can just figure out what the component parts of this formula are, then we can just do it and it'll always happen. You know, like putting a, a, a coin in a vending machine, pressing the button and the can comes out the bottom. But that's never the case of how it works when we pray. You know, we can pray for someone and think, well, that person didn't get healed, therefore there must be secret sin in their life that's blocking the healing. We need to go away and figure out what it is. Or, or we do the other way around. We actually say, well, as the prayer, my faith wasn't strong enough to heal this person when I prayed today, so therefore I've got to go away and feel guilty because I've got something wrong in my life that's blocking healing. There's always a temptation when someone isn't healed to try and figure out, well, what, what went wrong? What's the missing component? How can we fix that? The reality is, guys, when we pray, God doesn't always heal. Miraculous healings are called miraculous because they are miraculous. And a miracle is something that doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes when we pray, God comes in power and there's a healing. Sometimes when we pray, God comes in power and there isn't healing. The two important things that we've done is that we've chosen to pray and the person who we're praying for feels loved and supported in that moment of prayer. They feel the care and the concern of our love for them and God's love for them. And so we don't start looking for someone to blame or to find a missing component when things don't turn out as we always like them to. Our job is to pray, as you can see. Our job is to be a people of prayer and we leave the rest to God. It is God who raises people up. And I think if we become more of a praying community, we become more of a caring community. Yeah? 
because we are noticing people and we're coming alongside them and we want to support them and bless them. Do as much as we can do. James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's a direction here of encouragement to everyone to get involved in prayer, whether it's being prayed for or giving prayer. There's a, a sense of, of the church becoming a praying community in the midst of mutual accountability. Now, confessing sins to each other is all about sharing lives together in a vulnerable way, really. It's about being honest with each other, about where we're struggling and what, what's going on in our lives. It's about the community bring itself together in wholeness around Jesus. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective for bringing change and transformation. You're all righteous people if you're following Jesus. You're made righteous by him. And so this is why we're so pro-prayer at Riverside. While we leave time for prayer in our services, often we encourage a response in prayer because we believe, as James says, that prayer is powerful and effective for bringing change. A righteous person is anyone who's in right standing with God. And if you're following Jesus this morning, you're in right standing with God. And so your prayers are powerful and your prayers are effective. We can all pray powerful and effective prayers because of who we are in Christ. James uses Elijah. Elijah is a very popular Jewish figure, often referred to in Jewish writing. Very popular because of his miracles and his lifestyle. But James cites him here. Why? Well, not because of his miracles, but because he is just an ordinary person, just like you and me. He's a human being. He's an ordinary person, just as we are. He prayed these prayers that caused rains to stop and rains to start. The Bible doesn't actually record Elijah praying for the drought to start, but it does record him praying uh, for the rain to come. He sees the clay of the size of a man's hand, doesn't he? And he prays for the rains to come. And there's a powerful breaking of the drought. Read about that in 1 Kings 18 if you want to. So Elijah is pictured as this man of prayer who can pray powerful prayers, but he's just like you and me. He's an ordinary person. There's a beautiful translation hidden here that we can't see. It says that Elijah, um, he prayed, what's he say? He prayed from within his prayers. It's like he had a prayer life, and from that prayer life, he could pray powerful prayers. He prayed from within his prayers. And so Elijah was a man who had a life of prayer, and from that life of prayer, he could pray powerful and effective prayers that would bring about rains. So we've got James with his camel knees. We've got Elijah praying his prayers from inside his life of prayer. And what James is trying to do is encourage you and I more and more. Prayer is such a powerful tool that is accessible to any follower of Jesus. We can all do it. There's no special training required, no special words needed. We can all pray all the time in all things. And prayer is so powerful and effective for bringing about change and uniting people in the church community. So if you get the opportunity to receive prayer, I would say always take it. If you get the opportunity to give prayer, I would say always give it. Yeah? (laughs) Just pray for people. Ask for prayer. Pray for people. Ask for prayer. Pray for people. Ask for prayer. 
because that strengthens the church community and it releases the power and effectiveness of God's spirit moving in our church. Hands out to receive, hands out to give. Become the most natural thing in the world as a follower of Jesus to receive prayer and to give prayer. And this is the sort of praying community that, that James was encouraging throughout the church. James finishes his letter by reinforcing the importance of church community. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth. The imagery here is someone wandering. It's a bit weak wander. It's more like making choices, being seduced, falling under deception, making bad habits. It's not just, oh, I just, I just strayed away for a moment. It's actually a direction of travel. So if you see someone heading in a bad direction of travel, the church community is called to kind of help that person come back to safety and love and care. This is one of the key reasons why we have small groups at Riverside. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I don't know your dog's name. And I may never know your dog's name, but someone needs to know your dog's name, Harvey. Someone needs to know your dog's name. Someone needs to know enough about you that they know those small details of your life because they're the people who can care for you and support you and notice if you're wandering off. That's why we have small groups at Riverside. In a large growing church, it's impossible to know everybody and impossible to know all the details in people's lives. But you need a small group of people who do know you well, who you can be vulnerable with, share life with, and actually do know those details and can help you if they feel like you're wandering away. They can gently encourage you back. And that's why we have small groups in a large church because that's where the community really, really takes place. We have trusted friends who we know love us, can bring us back and care for us. It amazes me that Mary and Joseph travelled for a day from Jerusalem before they realised they hadn't got Jesus with them. Yeah? Oh, where's Jesus? Oh, he's back in Jerusalem. They've travelled a day. They had to travel back and find him. What does that tell you about their travelling arrangements? It must have been a big crowd, hadn't it? It says their friends and relatives were all with them. So this big, massive people, no one realised that Jesus was missing. I've had people come to me in the past and say, did you realise I wasn't there on Sunday? I go, I'm sorry I didn't. Because I just, there were so many other people there who I did notice, I couldn't notice that you weren't there. And that's a bit of the situation that Mary and Joseph had when they were travelling in this big caravan of family and friends, travelling away from Jerusalem, realising suddenly, oh, Jesus is not with us, we've got to get, go back and find him. Jesus needed a moving buddy, didn't he? Like in Toy Story. He needed someone who would notice that he was missing. And we all need those kind of moving buddies in our lives, people who actually notice if we're missing, notice if we're going through difficult times. And that happens in smaller settings. It happens in small groups. And that's why that small group community is so important in a life for church like Riverside. Okay, guys, coming into land now, you've done really well with me this morning. We finished, James, this power-packed letter, this mini pocket of power and wisdom that's compressed into these just five chapters. We've covered a lot of ground quite quickly, and if you need to go back and recap, as always, all our talks will be on YouTube, and you can go back and maybe just say to the Lord, what do you want me to take away from this series? You know, James wrote this letter some 2,000 years ago, but it's still alive, isn't it? It's powerful as we read it, and it challenges us. It challenges us to live a life that reflects the person of the, the, the one who we say we worship. 
we say we worship this loving God, we worship Jesus, that should have a, an outworking in our lives. James's passion is to, that we reflect Jesus in our lives, in our character, in our choices, in the way we live. He wants us to become this holistic people, not fragmented, not different in, in different situations, but whole, so we can be just the same person in different places, bringing God's love into those different situations. We can be consistent. We can be caring. We can become community. And he also wants us to become this powerful community of faith that can bring transformation, that can pray powerful prayers and see things happen. That's the whole essence behind James's heart. So why don't we stand together these last few moments and, uh, and just ask the Holy Spirit just to speak to us. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. Thank you for being patient with me. James will be proud of you. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we sense you're here by your spirit. You're here in these writings. We thank you for the life of James. We thank you he was a tremendous encouragement. We thank you, God, that you inspired him to write some of these things down, that we could read them and, and be nourished by them thousands of years later. And God, if, you, if he was here in this room, we know he would be challenging us to, to live lives that reflect you. Live lives that embed your wisdom and your practice into our lives that we can actually be people who bring transformation. So Lord, we just pray that um, your words would have fallen on good soil over these past few weeks. And what needs to take seed and grow will take seed and grow. We'll, we'll begin to flourish and bear fruit in our lives. You know each one of us individually this morning. You know our needs, you know our cares, you know our hopes and dreams. So Holy Spirit, we just bless you. Come and help us flourish. Come and help us steward what you put into our hands. Come and help us to run to keep up with the activity of your Spirit in our lives. We bless you this morning. We bless you this morning. Maybe this morning, if you've never put your hands out before, why not try it? Just put your hands out in prayer. Let's receive this morning. Simple thing to do with our bodies. Just our body posture helps us. So we just we just receive this morning, Lord Jesus. We just receive all you have for us. All you have for us. And help us to use our hands to bring healing. To use our mouths to bring restoration and love. To use our resources wisely and considerately in light of those around us. That's in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.